we can get a big bunch of information. We can tell how big that planet is, roughly what it's made of, what its atmosphere contains, what its orbital period is. And all of this information that we can collate together gives us a bit of a view on what that planet might be like. So some of those planets are big gas giants like we would see in our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, those type of planets. We also do find smaller rocky planets like planet Earth. That's what we're that's what we're looking for, and, and the the predecessor to the test satellite, which was the Kepler satellite, still also being used quite actively as well. That found thousands and thousands of exoplanets. TESS is a little bit more refined. It's a little bit more refined in its hardware, but it's also a little bit more refined in the work that it does as well. And it, it's found a huge number of exoplanets, but probably around 60 that are Earth-like planets. And when we say Earth-like planet, what we mean is approximately size of Earth and orbiting at a distance from the star where liquid water could exist on it. Welcome to the Land Life Podcast with your host, PJ Riley. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Land Life Podcast. My name is PJ Riley. Guys, if you're getting value from this show, don't forget, like, subscribe, leave five stars. Um, if you're on Spotify or iTunes, do me a solid and just leave a review. You know, your guest today, Ian, was super interesting. I uh, can't wait for the next episode, something like that. Nothing too crazy. Um, guys, at the end of the podcast, if what Ian says resonates with you, stick around to the very end. He's going to leave you ways that you can contact him. And uh, that way you guys can keep the conversation going kind of down the road. Um, also, we buy and sell land, we're land life, dirt, dirt and trees, pretty much. Um, I get a lot of uh, people asking me, um, you know, I want to be involved in the land business, but I don't really know how, uh, you know, and if, or, or I don't have the time to really invest in the land business and investing in land, uh, shoot me a message and I'll explain kind of ways that you can be a part of that. You know, I'm not soliciting for a fund just yet, but uh, maybe down the road, that might be something we can do. Um, so guys, all the way from the UK, it's seven o'clock at night out there. He stayed up late to hang out with us. Uh, Ian Hall, <laughs> astrophysicist Ian Hall. How's it going, man? Thanks, PJ. Yeah, really good. It's been a lovely sunny day here in the UK. And uh, now I get to do a cool podcast in the evening as well, just as the temperature's cooling down. So, yeah, nice evening. That's great. Yeah, you almost never hear that it's warm in the UK. That's a pretty rare yeah, thing. It is pretty rare, yeah. The last time it was warm in the UK, the rail network melted. So we're hoping that that we're hoping that that does happen. That's a true story. Wow! <laughs> Anything um, over okay. about 20, 25 degrees. Wow! And that's Celsius. Celsius, right? yeah. Celsius. Just for all the Americans that are like twenty five. That sounds cold. They do it <laughs> yeah, different. No, it's, it's all different out there. Any twenty fives warm to us. <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. So Ian, you're an astrophysicist. I'm going to read off your 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 a quick bio here. You're a fellow. Sorry. Sorry. Astro physicist and a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, that's, indeed. That sounds really, really important. So we're going to keep going. Uh, you're the founder of The Average Scientist. Um, so you're, you're trying to make science more accessible to the average person. And then here's something I thought was really interesting. Um, you're an active participation, participant. I need to learn how to speak. An active participant <laughs> in research to detect transitioning exoplanets beyond the milky way galaxy that's insane all right let's unpack that ian how did you let, let's, let's let's go back do a background on you a quick background sure. how did you get to the point we're at right now well i started off pj in um, another industry so i started off in the tech industry so uh, i am 47 years of age and um, if you do the math backwards for that you'll kind of figure out that at the time i was leaving school um, and there were lots of interesting career options, whether I could yeah. go into, you know, science or law or history or art or something like that. Somebody, um, and this makes me sound really old. Somebody, hey, we're the same age. Then, I'm 45. So we're, we're, we're about the same. <laughs> yeah. Age. So yeah, we're on the, we're, we're, we're definitely on the same page there then. So yeah, someone invented the internet yeah. and that was pretty cool. And I, I felt like that, that, that was something that I had to get involved in. So, um, I started doing a bit of coding and you know fiddling around building some websites that type of thing and that was kind of where my career path led for a while so I was kind of a geeky early stage web coder um, you know early websites that type of thing 
And then that sort of um, fascination grew a little bit. And I realized I wasn't actually particularly artistically gifted in terms of um, the technology sector. So I was never going to go off and be like a graphic designer or a, you know, a game developer or something like that. But I was really interested in the data. And that's the bit that I was kind of really good at. I've always been quite good with numbers and things like that. So that was kind of where that fascination grew. And um, after being, you know, pretty uh, articulate at science subjects at school, in some later life, I decided to do some mature study um, a few years ago now. And that led on to where I am today. So that study followed um, a pathway through learning some new coding languages, so Python in particular, and um, and then on to developing that fascination that I'd always had with physics. So I guess like when my friends were building things out of Legos and, um, you know, trying to work out, trying to take bits of electronics to pieces and figure out how they worked. I was kind of like looking up at the sky and wondering why the moon didn't fall out of it. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where it led me through today. I mean, there's some education and some a horrific amount of mathematics in between those yeah. brief sentences there. But um, as we got through that, I arrived um, at the job that I do today, which um, is computational astrophysics. So um, I guess, do you want to move on to that bit now? Shall we? Shall we? Yeah, have a man. Chat what, about that? Explain that. What is what is astrophysics? So it's a, it's a, it's a, first and foremost, it's a study of physics. So the physical elements of the universe around us, but in, in, in these terms, astrophysics is the, is the study of physics beyond the earth, really, I suppose, okay. if that's what, the way, the way you want to call it. I mean, there's a number of different fields you can work in, um, in, in this particular job and the field that I've chosen, um, to conduct research and outreach in really is this, um, search for earth like exoplanets. So I suppose at a 10,000 foot view, we are working on the, probably one of the oldest questions in, you know, in the history of our civilization, are we alone? It's a big wow. question. So you're looking for like the next, like the avatar planet. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, the movie Avatar, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a very that's a very good analogy. Yeah, I mean, if we found something like that, that would be amazing. I, I guess the technology that we're using probably isn't quite as advanced as um, detecting something of that nature. I mean, undoubtedly, there's probably something like that that exists out there. But whether we would actually be able to detect it in that level of detail with our current equipment um, is sort of slightly debatable, but. We certainly do have some very advanced equipment, some equipment that was primarily built in your country, uh, very expensive equipment <laughs> that is floating around in space in various places. And we all use that. We all take the data from that. Um, NASA are very good at, at being accessible and sharing that data. And we all get access to, um, to that to, to do our research. So that's primarily what that exoplanet um, hunting project or that exoplanet surveying project is around. And to sort of just briefly drill into that for people, what, what happens is we use a piece of NASA hardware called TESS, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellites. It's basically just a spacecraft with a really powerful camera on it. And that looks at stars elsewhere. So pretty much the stars that you can see in the sky, we'll have looked at loads of those, plus ones that you can't see as well. And it measures how bright those stars are. So uh, if you can imagine... Um, a star might be, I don't know, a brightness of 10 or something like that. It doesn't really matter what the scale is, but let's imagine it's 10. And then what we're actually looking for is for a reduction in that brightness. So Tess will look at the star for a little while. It will see the star is 10 bright. And then for a short period of time, it might drop to seven and then it will lift up to 10 again. So what that tells us is that something has blocked a little bit of the light from that star. Something has passed between the star and Tessa's camera. And what that usually is, is a transiting exoplanet. Wow. So a planet, so a planet, yeah, a planet orbiting another star. And from that, we can get a big bunch of information. We can tell how big that planet is, roughly what it's made of, um, what its atmosphere contains, what its orbital period is. And all of this information um, that we can collate together gives us a bit of a view on what that planet might be like. So some of those planets are big gas giants like we would see in our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, those type of planets. We also do find smaller rocky planets like planet Earth. Wow. So, um, yeah, that's what we're that's what we're looking for. And, and 
the the predecessor to the test satellite, which was the Kepler satellite, still also being used quite actively as well. That found thousands and thousands of exoplanets. TESS is a little bit more refined. It's a little bit more refined in its hardware, but it's also a little bit more refined in the work that it does as well. And it, it's found a huge number of exoplanets, but probably around 60 that are Earth-like planets. And when we say Earth-like planet, what we mean is approximately the size of Earth and orbiting at a distance from the star where liquid water could exist on its surface. That's so cool. That's, that's pretty Earth-like. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you're seeing <laughs> this. Um, I have so many questions because I know nothing sure. about this. So first of all, how how likely so, – so can an average person – can an average person get the same type of equipment and be able to – you know, on a random Thursday night, look up and see if they can find a, a planet that maybe look like you look like looks like the Earth. Well, that is an excellent question. <clears throat> and the answer to it is yes. Wow. And you and most people will already have that technology in their house because all you need is a computer. So there's a huge project which was born in the uh, in the US, a huge what we would call a citizen science project. So citizen science projects are where scientific research teams that are being paid to do research conduct some outreach to members of the general general public and ask for help. So what it is, it's almost like a, you can think of it like a charitable donation, but we're not asking for your money. We're just asking for your time. That's all. So you can sit down and you can participate for five minutes or you can participate for 60 hours a week if you're if you're that interested. So any contribution helps. This project has been made possible over the last few years, obviously, with the onset of things like the Internet and also the fact that we've got huge distributed computing power so you can access tools and uh, databases and things like that that previously would just been impossible to to get you know into your home or my home or whatever it might be but those are very accessible now and um, the place to go and look for citizen science projects is a place called zooniverse so if your users are really interested in that go off to zooniverse.org and that is a place where all um well not all but a majority of the research organizations will post science projects and they're not just space projects you can participate in medical research geographical research all sorts of different things there's tons and tons of information on there and it's ridiculously easy to get involved anybody can do it you don't need to be a scientist you don't need to be great at maths you don't need to be a genius all contributions help and anybody can do it in fact we even run a workshop to teach it in schools here in the uk and we teach it to 11 to 16 year olds well okay i had to write that but we, down. But we, universe.org i had to write that down Zooniverse.org, yeah. Okay. Average person can go in there and find the next avatar planet, guys. Pay attention to that. If you got, an, you got a few <laughs> well, hours could, to kill, <laughs> you know, you're just sitting there waiting in the doctor's office for, you know, your, your kids to get done or something like that. Pop on a Zooniverse.org and find the next avatar and, and save the planet. And a bunch of other stuff as well. Can do some medical research if that's what your passion or that's what your interest is. You know, there's there's a, a huge number of projects on there. I don't know how many, maybe a couple of hundred projects or something. Um, and they come in sort of um, waves, if you like, where there'll be generally it's sifting data. That's what we're asked to do. And the reason that we're asked to help with that, and it sounds like a really terrible job, but it's not a terrible job. It's an interesting job. Yeah. But the reason that we're asked to do that is because computers are really bad at it human beings are much better at intuitively looking at something and deciding whether what they're looking at is makes sense or whether it's nonsensical and computers make mistakes way too often for that and of course scientific research is really expensive and there's no way that they're going to pay research teams to do some of this work because it's just too much there's just too much of it it's too big it would yeah. take forever so um we need help and that is one of the ways that we request it and anyone is able to contribute so much so actually that on some of the um i can't speak for some of the other projects because i don't know but certainly with the transiting exoplanet project if you are um part of if if you're 
contribute if your contribution leads to the discovery of a new exoplanet you'd be named on the scientific paper to announce it to the community wow. so it's real it's really real wow that is so cool okay so you you're you're saying here you were aiming to make science accessible to anybody um sure. how were you able to do that how is that something you're working on right now uh, I think it's just the way that we, I mean, we've got our sort of, we've got a unique style in the terms of the way that we deliver science information. And I don't think that that's new. I don't think that's a new thing. We we can't claim to have invented it. There are some really great science communicators out there. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson in your country, for example, Brian Cox in um, in the UK. These types of people sort of touring academics or, um, you know, highly educated scientists that uh, re also just happen to be really good at communication there's not really enough of those and actually we don't they don't get a huge amount of airtime on the tv so i don't know how you fare in the us with with sort of tv shows like that but we'll have them infrequently um here on the bbc as documentaries or something like that or you can probably just look up a bunch on netflix if you're particularly interested but if it's really your thing you'll probably run out of them in a week or something yeah. so there's not much of it out there uh you know if you if you if you like some other form of entertainment you know comedy or drama or something like that you can just go on forever and ever and ever but there isn't really a huge amount of this so we're on a bit of a mission to um replicate and add to the good work that those people have been doing but just on a bit on a on a bigger scale because those guys are very very busy doing other stuff as well so that's kind of what what we're doing we've got um a blog where we write articles and explainers on there um so they're on a wide variety of subjects we also have our own podcast as well and we make short documentary films tiktoks we do stuff on youtube and we also present live as well so we do all those types of things and it's kind of a reflection of science becoming almost like entertainment if you like i think i'm not a big fan of the term but i think they call it edutainment i think that's what it's been called in the uk yeah but yeah enter entertaining education and this is a big thing i mean brian cox is on a worldwide sellout tour now like like some kind of crazy rock band tour where he's <laughs> he's so sold out you know 50 well, i don't think that's quite that but 50 maybe 15 20 000 seat wow. arenas for something like a hundred dates over two years or something it's ridiculous so there's a real interest in this from the public and um yeah we want to stand on the shoulders of that and make it accessible because i think a lot of the time people will um engage with science topics very briefly and then think oh there's no way that i'm going to be able to understand that but actually i think that most people can understand the majority of certainly the majority of topics that are in my field the the difference or the difficult part if you like is proving those and that's where the mathematics and things comes in and the training but if you're happy to receive the information from a scientist and um get the sort of ten thousand foot view of it most things you could understand so i could explain most things to you in under a minute and you'd get it so totally going away and proving it will take some time and learning some mathematics but most people are not interested in that they're happy to just understand yeah so that's what, yeah, it's what you say too about like um <clears throat> If you go on Netflix, you'll see a lot of, you can find unlimited comedies. You can find unlimited drama yep. shows, but anything of interest of that's probably beneficial to you or, or to society in general. I like in finance, actual real finance shows on Netflix to that, you know, not, not a drama, but something that's like uh, maybe interesting or shows how a, built, a business was built from start to finish, something like this, something that would teach you about astrophysics. They're very few and far between. You have to really look. And when you do get through them, you're like, all right, I've, I've watched them all. There's, there's three <laughs> yeah. and I've watched them all yeah. on board now. Um, <laughs> so one way of getting hold of people um, in like in my industry and in a lot is like you said, TikToks, um, you know, TikToks, Instagram uh, videos, things like that. How, how big are you into that, that social media part of things? Well, we're very, we're trying. So our, our social channels are quite embryonic. Probably the most developed is Facebook, um, where we've got a few thousand people that follow us on there. And that's quite good. We've only recently just invested um, in some video equipment and we're quite a, um, we're quite pedantic about the way that we do things. So people can create things like YouTube videos and TikToks in all sorts of different ways, but we're quite pedantic over our production on those so what we want to try and do is bring um science documentary grade content 
but just make it in a single minute in TikTok. And what, what we found through our sort of experimentation process was actually, if you want to make documentary grade film for a minute, you've got to buy documentary grade film gear that you could make a two hour documentary with. That's, yeah. that was some of the big issue. And you like, you would have thought like with all these sort of, yeah, all these clever guys and girls in a room that do science. And then we thought, oh, we're going to need a better camera and some mics here. <laughs> so, uh, so we're still sort of developing that. And um, some of uh, some of our uh, content writers and some of our content creators, I suppose, it's their first time being in front of a camera. And it's a very different experience. You know, like yeah. we've we found it's it's hilarious how how frozen you can get when you see the little <laughs> red light come on. It's hard yep. and it takes practice. So we're we're sort of going through some media training and all that type of stuff to try and do this. You put those guys in front of a thousand people to talk about science and they'll be fine. Put yeah. them in front of nobody in a red LED and they absolutely freeze up and go to pieces. So it is yeah. hard. So that's kind of where we are on our social media journey. We're learning and uh, we've done a little bit of content on TikTok and we've done, we've published our non-video based podcast on YouTube, but we are making at the moment a series of um, five documentaries, which are about 60 minutes each called Beyond the Horizon. So the first one of those um, will be or should be available December this year. Um, and that is called Beyond the Horizon, Chasing the Milky Way. So most people don't know, for example, that, I mean, we live in a spiral galaxy. I think a lot of people probably know that we live in a spiral galaxy, but many people don't know that you can actually see the Orion spur or the Orion arm of the Milky Way galaxy with only your eyes if you get somewhere dark. Hmm. And we're teaching people how to do that in this documentary and exploring it and taking some people that have not seen that before. So um, off to a dark sky site in the UK somewhere, waiting for that to get dark, and then just seeing people's reaction. And PJ, it's been awesome. I've had people bursting into tears and all sorts. It's it's absolutely incredible if you see it for the first time yourself. So it just makes it so real. And yeah. yeah, the reactions are the reactions are amazing. And working with um, some of our tech guys to capture some of that, you know, it's been quite difficult. So we've we've got tons of stuff to edit up and. Yeah, so hopefully we'll get this series yeah. of documentaries out and that'll be cool. And it'll give people something different to to watch if they're interested in that, apart from just watching those three things on Netflix. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's interesting too, because I guess if you look at it, nobody's looking up, right? We're all looking straight. We're all looking at a phone or For at, sure, at yeah. a screen, right? So you're helping, you know, you're, you're showing people what it, what it looks like up in the sky, you know, when most people live in a city, they live in a, in a metro metropolitan area where even if you looked up, you wouldn't really see the stars. No. So you kind of got to go out to where it's, it's a little bit darker and it's a little more rural out there. Right. To, to see all that kind of stuff. Most definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. <clears throat> the light pollution in most cities, whether that be uh, UK, US, Europe, wherever you're looking at the light pollution does really ruin things. So you are going to need in terms of seeing something like the Milky Way, you are going to need, a dark area yeah but i mean there's tons of stuff that you can see in the sky even in a city tons of bright stuff and uh, we teach people things like um you know light has a finite speed for example so just a little bit of little 30 seconds of astrophysics so light has a finite <laughs> yeah your notebooks speed. everybody <laughs> it travels it travels we'll be on the test <laughs> it travels at one hundred eighty-six thousand miles a second so light's pretty quick but it does have a speed and it takes time to get from A to B, just like it takes you time to get from your home to your grocery store. You can't do it instantly. It takes time. And the universe is so big and those stars that you can see are so far away that when you look up into the night sky, you're actually looking back in time quite significantly in some instances. So, yeah. for example, if you look at the sun, and I wouldn't recommend anybody looks directly at the sun because you'll hurt your eyes, but the, the, the light from the sun is about eight minutes old, for example. Okay. So you're looking at the sun as it was eight minutes ago, not as it is now. It's not instant. And some of those stars are a long, long way away, and you can see a long way into the past by looking up. So, you know, one of these things that we teach kids in schools here is, you know, you can – Go and look at a time machine anytime you like. You just need to go outside and look up and you've got a perfect time machine in your sky and you can go and research and you can go and pick a star out, use an app on your phone to identify what star you're looking at in the sky. And then you can see how many light years that star is away. So if it is, you know, 
two light years away, you're seeing the star as it was two years ago. Wow, that's so cool. But there, but there are, but there are certainly stars that you can see with your naked eye that are millions of light years away. So you're looking millions of years into the past. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, very. Well, yeah, so that's super interesting. What about this? I hear a lot about uh, artificial intelligence right now, right? Sure. AI. AI seems to be like the hot topic with everything. How is AI fitting into <laughs> your ability to find these new exoplanets? So it's a really good question. Um, and that is exactly why we employ citizen scientists, because human beings are still smarter than that AI technology. So some of the work that the citizen scientists would do, we would use to teach the AI to be better. But I'll give you an example of what this looks like. So when we see these stars transiting round, uh, sorry, when we see these planets transiting round a star somewhere else, if you can imagine, um, so if your viewers, if you can imagine a graph that's perfectly horizontal, so you've got this perfectly horizontal graph, and then in the middle of that graph, we're going to see a U-shape where we see a dip in the brightness of the star. Now, AIs are really good at identifying whether that U-shape is a planet or not if it can see more than one. So if there's two or three U-shapes, the AI will be really good at it. If there's only one U-shape, it's undecided whether it's a real transit of an exoplanet or something that we call a false positive, which basically just means it's garbage and it's not a planet. And that is a really human intervention to do that. And the reason that humans are better than AIs at, at identifying that um, is because when you get the multiple U-shapes in the graph, what that means is that the planet is transiting around the star very quickly, very, very quickly. So AIs are really good at spotting planets that whiz around a star multiple times in just a few hours. But if you think about us here on Earth, you know, we only go around our star very infrequently. Yeah. Once a year. Yeah. So if we, if we um, looked at our planet, for example, an AI wouldn't pick out earth as a transiting exoplanet from miles away it wouldn't be very good at doing it so the answer to the question how do we use ai in our we're trying um and i think everybody's trying to utilize ai the best that they can but actually we are um a very human based research process it's very human based and and our eyes whether you're a scientist or whether you're just a guy on the street whether you work in a store or whether you work in a school or whether you um, you know, whatever you do for a, for a job, your eyes are still miles better than an AI. So that's where we are with it in my field, for sure. It does, it does have um, its, its benefits in things like cr crunching some data, etc. But yeah, for sure, we still rely on good old human beings for the moment. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And AI is really only as smart as, as we tell it to be, right? So if if it's going to take a human to discover this new planet, wherever it is, and then that human will tell it to AI, AI will learn that and then proceed, correct? Because AI is not really out, unless I'm wrong, AI is not really learning on its own, is it right now? It is to some extent, yeah. And I and I think that's... Um... It's a, it's a really good thing that you 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 sort of identify there. So what is the difference? And I think what we're talking about is the difference between, um, and I'm not an AI expert, but I think it's like general AI or something, and then there's another name. But um, yeah, so the general AI, the machine learning element means a bit like probably like it, it's in a Tesla car or something where it kind of learns, you know, if roads are at this condition, then I should probably not brake as hard. You know, that kind of like yeah. test and learn type thing. There are some AIs um, that are certainly building towards that neural network type approach where, um, you know, I don't need to teach you, for example, everything about about a particular. So if I'm going to teach you to play soccer or I'm going to teach you to play baseball, I don't need to teach you everything about that. I just need to give you some sort of yardsticks and you'll fill in the gaps yourself because your neurons will connect and you'll go okay yeah i probably don't want to hold a baseball bat in one hand i'll probably get more traction if i hold it in two you know these types of things so that type of ai learning is the one that i think a lot of people have concerns about certainly have concerns about it in the science community um yeah. and i've listened to a few 
presentations on that a few experts speak on that and it is pretty you know it's pretty scary yeah it is pretty scary i mean I, i would think like my view on that it's not an isolated view but for example um seat belts in cars so seat belts in cars we we probably took 20 years to learn that if you don't wear a seatbelt in a car the chances of you dying in a car crash are way higher now we knew that but it was another 20 years before we did anything about it mm. stuff like nuclear weapons like we knew that was quite dangerous but we still did use those a couple of times thank goodness we've seemed to have learned our lesson on that now but we still use them a couple of times before they learned before we learned that they were very destructive with ai we won't get this chance there won't be this chance yeah so yeah. we need to what want if ai is developed beyond the level of human intelligence um i think elon musk famously once said um he doesn't know whether the outcome of that will be good or bad all he can say for any certain is that we won't have a say yeah absolutely That's and quite scary and the, isn't it absolutely but then on the flip side of that if ai never develops and we rely on ai if we were to basically rely on everything that currently AI knows, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Idiocracy. Um, uh, no, I haven't actually. Oh my gosh, you got to see it. It's 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 so it's really good. Well, basically, the, the world doesn't get any better. It just gets dumber, okay. progressively dumber. Is the premise okay. of the movie? Um, and it's a it's a guy, and, and I'll and I'll do a quick explanation of the, of, of the movie. Um, it's it's a guy who's uh who's in a military experiment and he gets frozen and and he ends up in the future. And the world got right. progressively dumber. I mean, and that's in the first five minutes, you'll see that. <laughs> okay. And, and that's basically what would have happened. What happens if we rely on current information, right? We would never get any better. We would never progress. We would always rely on previous knowledge. Uh, if we rely on this AI, that's what, that's what came to my mind when I first discovered AI. I was like, wait a minute, if we're going to keep relying on something that only knows information up to what last year or something like that, like chat GPT, um yeah we're never going to progress past this and i can easily see people wanting to default to that because it's easier you know i don't need to learn anything i don't need to write a paper at school i don't need to uh, you know do any research i'll just go into chat gpt hey what do i do here it punches out your answer and you turn it in right but if we if we rely yeah. on that that could be kind of scary yeah i know i i completely agree i completely agree and i i was um i was at a conference not so long ago and uh, it wasn't an ai conference it was a general science conference but there was uh, some ai specialists there and there was one guy um i won't mention who it is but he he caused a real stir actually um and i was kind of chuckling to myself as it, i was thinking this is a really aggressive speech that he was giving really <laughs> aggressive and it was on the um it was on the sort of big question that gets asked you know why are we here what is our purpose? It's a very philosophical question, isn't it? And sure. people weigh in on that. Scientists won't weigh in on that. They won't, they won't try, you know, I'm not going to try to say why we're here. I can tell you, you know, well, I can tell you where the earth came from and how the moon was made probably and all this different stuff, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't cross that boundary into that belief system where we would say, okay, here is a reason for us being here. Yeah. But his, his premise on it was um, what if, and it was only really a what if, what if our purpose here is just to develop AI? Because people say, oh, like, what do human beings do? Well, they, we build stuff. That's what we do. Yeah. Bigger cars, faster computers, bigger screen, bigger house. You know, all these things. We're builders. We're developers. And what if, as an evolu from an evolutionary perspective, that we are just, well, he termed it, we are the sex organs of the robots. <laughs> yikes <laughs> yeah exactly and i had the same reaction i kind of like <laughs> gently put my drink down and thought whoa okay this is this is going to go off um, and people yeah. were actually quite receptive to his perspective actually but um i mean i don't think he really genuinely believed that but introducing it as a concept you know sure. why are we here um you can see with the onset of the development of ai and the fact that we do we do seem to go as human beings through this cycle of constant innovation we always we're never happy are we i mean what are we up to now like iphone 67 or something i mean what was wrong with the iphone 43 yeah it's just it, it but it's very much we can't help it next year there'll be another one another one we'll do better and faster and bigger it's just that's what we do we build stuff absolutely yeah and and we're, we're distancing ourselves from the people who understand it versus the people who don't you know, it's, it's because the gap is getting bigger and bigger and bigger 
as far as people who actually understand what's happening, you know, the, uh, sure. the actual function of AI. I mean, anybody can go on chat GPT and type in something, right? But the yeah. people who actually understand it versus the ones that don't, it's, I, I feel like the gap is getting bigger. I would, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. And I mean, is there, yeah, I guess you've got to ask yourself, does that, is that, a, is it a good thing or a bad thing? Do we think, I mean, I, th I suppose it could be both, couldn't it? Yeah. Certainly the fact that people are more educated, you know, if you can arrive more quickly at an answer to a question that you have, then maybe that's a good thing. Maybe people will gradually become more educated and, um, you know, more aware of these types of things, but you're right that the, the the nuts and bolts to get there is really important that we preserve um, a section of society that's able to to do that. I mean, we all benefit from things we don't understand, don't we? Like I drive my car every day. Yeah. If it breaks down, I'm in big trouble. That's it. I'm not a car mechanic. I'm calling, I'm calling my local car mechanic, and that's that's me done. But um, you know, so we all get the benefit of things like that, which is which is fine. But actually, you're right. If it permeates more, I suppose, into society and it turns into just everything, yeah. you know, then that then that does become a does become a real problem. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I obviously I buy real estate, and in I, I come across more and more people who kind of stopped um, following technology once the internet was made. Some of these people don't yeah. have email addresses. You know, they don't yeah, really yeah. understand the internet all that well. And that's a large section of even this country. There's a large yeah. rural part of this country that just simply doesn't understand it. And when I speak to these people and, and they don't have an email address to send documents to, or, you know, they can't go to a website to, to fill out a, a, a billing invoice or something like that. When yeah. I think about them, I, I feel bad because that is what two technologies ago, right? That was the yeah. internet. One, you know, now we have yeah, yeah. so far ahead of that. Now they're light years behind. And this isn't, I'm not talking yeah. about really old people. I'm just talking about a group, an area where, you know, it's just not a thing they talk about and they're going to be so far behind, um, you know, when this takes off even more, I just kind of worry about their, uh, their futures, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult. I think, during, uh, and that probably became especially prevalent during the recent pandemic. And I mean, mm -hmm. because the, the amount of stuff that you actually literally forced to do online, yeah. you know, even down to things like you just your grocery shopping. I mean, uh, you could still do that. I'm sure you could do that in person in the States as well. They kept all of our essential stores open type thing, but, but actually the queues were horrific. And there was a time at the beginning of that when it was actually probably really risky, especially if you were a, um, you know, an older person, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you're getting up into your 60s, 70s, 80s or whatever, it was probably quite dangerous to go out at that time at the beginning when, when everything was kind of running rife. So um, access to internet services and technology definitely made things safer. And you, I think you were at a huge disadvantage if you didn't have that, especially people that would live alone. You yeah. feel very, very cut off indeed and yeah. very isolated. And I can see how that would have caused a major problem. I mean, even, you know, it's wonderful technology like we're using today, which can just in a blink of an eye, just connect on other sides, you know, yeah. opposite sides of the world type thing. It's amazing. Yeah. And, I, and I think if people understood that then um, and how to utilize that technology for their benefit rather than it just being, because I think sometimes people view things, don't they, as it's a, it's a bind to learn it like, Oh, I can't be bothered yeah. to learn that. You know, I'm too old to learn all that, Yeah. but actually it's relatively straightforward to learn. And if you do the benefits far outweigh, um, you know, the sort of slightly shallow learning curve that technology companies work really hard to make even more shallow by making stuff easier to use. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty cool. And it would be, um, yeah, I, I can understand your concerns for people that don't, don't get on board with it for sure. Yeah. I think guys like you and I are, are at a huge ad advantage maybe because we saw the world before. So we remember yeah. what it was like before, like specifically, we remember days where we had to stand up and walk outside and to see our friends. You had to go knock on their door to, 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 to find a friend, right. Or to call them on the phone, on the phone, I, the phone. I actually the house, thought, the, attached I thought, to the wall. I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to say there, which, which is also true. We had to stand up and walk outside to see if it was raining. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Couldn't, yeah. I couldn't I just leave my, my bed just in the morning. I just took the weather. I'm like, ah, it's raining. All right. And just set it down. Right. But we remember that. So we've also seen the progression as to where we're at now. So we can kind of appreciate the difference versus yeah. like my kids don't know any different than the internet. They were, they've only known the internet their whole life. They've only sure. known you can go to your phone, you know, 
type in a few keys and you know exactly the answer to any question that, that exists. So sure. I, th I think we have it, a, I think we have it better because we've seen what it's like before. We could survive in that previous world, but we're also understanding technology, I guess. For sure. I mean, let me just spin this one as well, just to your listeners and your viewers, yeah. because I think it'll be really interesting for them to um, to think about this as a perspective, especially now after the chat that we've just had about that. So we have had in our civilization science of that nature for probably about a thousand years, something mm. like that. So it's about a thousand years. So uh, even 500 years, I suppose, really, to really start developing technology hard, 500 years. The universe is nearly 14 billion years old. So, <laughs> wow. and, and it's, and it's unthinkably large. So what would we do if we found a civilization out there that hadn't had science for a thousand years, it had had it for 10,000 years wow. or a million years or a billion years. All of those are possible or very possible. So that we is, think about the technology scary. advancements. I know. Yeah. You think about the technology advancements we've seen in 20, 30 years, you know, the, 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 the advancement that could have been possible over tens of thousands of years or even millions or billions of years. I mean, another thing I like, like sort of illustrating, this is a, comes from my fascination with numbers, is articulating to people how much bigger a billion is than a million. Some people don't always understand that because we yeah. just roll those numbers off the tongue. So here's one to help you understand. A million seconds is about 11 days, something like that. A billion seconds is 30 years. It's so much bigger. That makes so it when we talk, a lot more real. Yeah, yeah. And that's a perfect example of the type of stuff that we would write on the average scientist, understanding a million and a billion. And it would all be built around that. One, one is, you know, one is 11 days. The other one's 30 years. Yeah. And then, and then what about if we jump to a trillion years? That's, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, a trillion seconds. That's 30,000 years. That's crazy. Big, they're, they're big. Yeah, crazy, crazy size, aren't they? So all these little things, I think that when to, when we're trying to sort of help people to understand, whether it be technology or whether it be science or whether it be facts and figures like that, I think if you can try to follow the lead, maybe of the technology companies. I mean, one of the big one of the the big companies that we base our work on is is Apple, just because I think they make great products and they work, or they historically did work incredibly hard on the user interface. It was all about the inter the interface between whatever Apple was making and the human being that was at the other side of it, and we try to take that ethos with our information and make the easiest possible interface between you and it, so, because you're going to get it much more quickly. And that's why people think generally that Apple products are great because they're easy to use, yeah. you know, they're intuitive. But somebody's really thought about that. They haven't just happened. There's a lot of work gone into that. Um, interaction with a human being and that's what we try to do in terms of science in finding the easiest route and testing our um, testing our explanations especially in our live presentations um, and it works really well so we've had some really good reaction to it and hopefully we'll get a chance at some point to come over to the US and do some stuff there as well but for the moment um, you, you US guys are unfortunately going to have to just see everything we do online but who, who knows we'll maybe survive. maybe someone will someone will commission us to come and do some live presentations in the US if anyone out there wants cool. to wants to do that that would, <laughs> would be, be pretty cool I, I have some friends that have a couple bucks yeah they have a little bit of fun, mon, funding so <laughs> if you guys are listening and and this, and this is something this is super interesting to me so um bring it over and I'll come I'll come check it out I have yeah, one question sure. I, I have a question for you sure. and the second I, I I heard I saw your bio um I wanted to ask you this and this is just cuz I'm kind of nerdy and I you know I, I've seen a few movies about otherworldly planets how yep. close are we to finding something like earth or if you can give us like an inside scoop on something that maybe you guys did find that would be man, kind <laughs> of can... like you know you, you didn't have to it doesn't have to be something where you saw like little creepy crawly creepy crawly things walking around on it but is there anything that maybe the general public doesn't know about an actual planet that exists out there 
Um, I think there's probably a lot that the general public don't know. There's probably a lot that the general public don't know about what goes on in our solar system, but that doesn't mean it's a big secret. It just means that the science community historically is just very poor at communicating what's going on. So, I mean, there's some places in our solar system where we'll probably find life. Mars is likely to be the first of those. Mm. Um, you know, what, what sort of time scale are we looking at for Mars now? Martian astronauts today are probably, and this is always a nice fact for people, probably about 10 years old. So if you've got a 10-year-old son or daughter today and they say to you, mom, dad, I want to be an astronaut to Mars, it's realistic. That's about how old those wow. guys are now. We're, we're, we're about the average age of a NASA astronaut is about 35 and we're about probably 25 years away from sending someone. So Definitely. that's a really realistic aspiration. Um, I think that when human beings travel to Mars, we'll find either microbial life or evidence of microbial life on Mars. So I guess the, the question here is, and it's always a big sort of, um, uh, I guess, debating point is what, what do we mean when we say life? Cause there are two different sort of scientific projects that examine that if you like. So one, which is the project that I pr primarily work on for exoplanets is the, is the search really for life. So by that, we, we would be really happy if we just found some goo, or some microbes <laughs> but but most people are interested in something that's not just that they're interested in something that's maybe intelligent or communicative well that's much more difficult um but the universe is still so big that it's it's almost um so i'll give you an example so there are roughly the amount of stars in the observable universe that we can see and we it's we're pretty sure it's quite a lot bigger than the bit that we can see so there's about the same number of stars in the observable universe as there are grains of sand on every beach and every desert on planet earth <laughs> and and okay. roughly i did a really i did a crazy article on the average scientist about this and there's about 80 there's about 80,000 grains of sand in an average kids uh, bucket that you would take to the beach to make a sandcastle so you get 80,000 in one of those uh, but more stars than there are on every beach and every desert every single one of those stars has got at least one planet orbiting it and then we would have the audacity to sit in our seat and say we're the only ones yeah, it's, right. it's actually it's ridiculously unlikely that yeah. we're the only uh that we're the only life if if we the if we are the only life then we have a, an enormous responsibility to behave better than we are doing, looking after where we live and looking after each other because we're, we're, we're historically quite bad at that. Um, but actually, as a communicative um, civilization, we're, pro we're probably not the only ones. The, the, the view, I think, from the science community is that um, will we find life on Mars or in our solar system? I would think so, yeah. I would think life is probably quite prevalent in the universe life sprung up on earth just pretty much as quickly as it as it could you know as soon as it was as soon as the conditions were possible for life to spawn on earth it did intelligent life took a lot longer a lot longer and I'm, i won't probably we don't have time today to go into the details but it was a, a really bizarre set of freakish circumstances that we think led to complex life now there are so many variables and so many planets and stars out there in the universe that I think the chances of that happening only once are virtually zero. You know, it's probably happened again a number of times, but actually um, I think the distances between them, even though the ones we alluded to earlier, you know, it takes us uh, three days to get to the moon, six months to get to Mars. Our nearest star or our nearest star system is called Proxima Centauri. If we traveled on the fastest thing that we've ever built, which was the Saturn V rocket that was built in your country. And we've pointed it at Alpha Centauri. It'd take us 80,000 years to get there. Oh, That's the nearest. Yeah. So we're not going, we're not tra we're not traversing those distances anytime soon. It's a long yeah. way. So I think the, the view from the science community is maybe there are other intelligent civilizations out there, but they're too far apart to have learned how to communicate with one another yet. That's that's kind of our, our view on it. So I'm so, may, maybe sorry to disappoint everyone that there's no major scoop. <laughs> we thought you had a planet <laughs> you were going to tell us about. But Come I can on. tell you about one. I can tell you about one thing which I think should be really interesting for your for your um, for your viewers. So when we were talking about these transiting exoplanets before, now we've seen quite a few of those now, thousands over over the course of a few years, and we we become quite um, you know, we develop a degree of expertise in terms of looking at those. So we've, we, if we 
if we see a particular type of star that we would classify under our, you know, star classification system, I won't bore anyone with the details, but let's just say it's, you know, a type one, two, three star. We see loads of them. So we know, we know what a one, two, three star looks like. And then we see a little planet orbiting that. And we think, okay, we, we've seen that type of thing before as well. All these things are very common. They're just planets orbiting stars. It's roughly this amount of distance. So it should you remember when we talked earlier about the scale of sort of 10 to six or whatever we said, mm -hmm. well, we would say, okay, this is that type of star. So what we're going to see here is that brightness dropping from 10 to six. That's what we expect. And 99 times out of a hundred, maybe 999 times out of a thousand. That's exactly what we see. But every now and then we don't, we see something different and usually it's a dip of a lot less. So usually it's a dip from 10 to 9.5 and we think okay that's weird because we know how big that is we know how big that star is where's that where's that other light going and mm -hmm. there is a fringe area of science that is now coming in and saying what you're looking at orbiting that star is not a planet it's technology it's uh -huh. a reflective it's a reflective surface it's a satellite that catches energy from that star and beams it back to its home planet because if we were Death smart star. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, in, in a <laughs> in a sort of a crazy sense. But I guess we're going through a bit of an energy crisis in the world at the moment, aren't we? I certainly, yeah. I think you're probably in the same um, position in the US as we are in the UK with your utilities costing more and more and more every month. And if we were smart, you know, when we are, we're getting smarter. But if we were smart, we would try and find a way to harness more free energy from wind and waves and things like that. But primarily from that massive nuclear reactor that hangs in the sky every day. Mm -hmm. The sun is a huge source of free energy. And um, yeah, scientists have said, if we were smart, if we move ourselves a thousand years in the future, are we still going to be burning fossil fuels and trying to split atoms and stuff for energy? No, we won't. We'll take it from the sun because that's a really efficient reactor already. So I guess that's what they're saying. If we're looking at exoplanets elsewhere, if we're looking for um, evidence of intelligent life, we probably won't, you know, see life itself. We will see evidence of that life in terms of its technology and if you think about if someone from a very very long way away looked at earth they would see evidence of our technology long before they saw us they'd see the lights that light up our cities they'd see the you know hundreds of satellites that will whiz around our planet they would see um spacecraft taking off they would detect radio waves tv signals mobile phone yeah. signals we're very good you know we're very technologically capable so there are huge signatures and and that is a search for exactly that something called a techno signature so there's another area of science and if you're really interested in that you can also get involved in that project on zooniverse it's called oh, seti okay. ucla seti okay that's so cool so if we're seeing this little sliver of something it's a space it's a it's a it's a space age or a space sorry an oil rig from another planet that's basically what it is it's tapping in yeah. the power of their sun their star and sending it back to their and it's sending exactly it back right, to yeah. their planet yeah. that's interesting it was a um, it was a it was a it was a concept that was that was theorized by um, a guy called freeman dyson a few years ago and he he kind of famously said if we were smart what we would do is we would build a superstructure that goes all the way around the sun so a big bit of scaffold that goes all the way around the sun full of solar panels and we collect 100 percent of its energy and then beam it through a big wire back down to the earth again well that sounds stupid and it is stupid and he, he was talking about it sort of very theoretically but then he sort of uh, refined that and he called that by the way he called that a dyson sphere that was his hmm. theoretical name for this superstructure the death star yeah. so what what he then diluted that to is what's better than a dyson sphere or more realistic is something that i'm going to call a dyson swarm and that is hundreds or thousands of satellites individually that collect a little bit of energy then move it down again. And if we don't think that that's realistic, then I would encourage your viewers to have a look at the Starlink project, if you know what that is. So mm. Starlink is a project by Elon Musk. There are hundreds of, satellite, hundreds of satellites in a swarm around the Earth currently, and you can currently buy very cheap, very quick internet from it. And that's a Dyson swarm, but he's using it to zap internet. Tesla was, Tesla was um, messing around with transmitting electricity without wires. 
you know, hundreds of years ago. So it's definitely possible. And uh, I think we'll see that technology becoming more prevalent over the next few years. It's not very good for the utility companies, of course, but, um, you know, that kind of solution to the energy crisis is is likely to be solved with solar power of some description. And the closer you can get to the sun, the more potent that that energy will be. So it makes perfect sense to do that. So if we looked out into the universe and we saw, you know, because I guess as a civilization, as we develop, one of the thing that we consume the most in our development is energy. Energy is our, it's our gold, isn't it? It's our, you know, that is Mm. our manna from heaven. That is what we need to develop the machines of our industry, our technology. It's all energy-based. So if another civilization, technologically capable civilization, were to move in the same way that we've done, their energy consumption would also increase. Therefore, they would need a plentiful supply of free, clean energy to develop with. And, you know, it's just really obvious where you get that. It's so obvious that that's the best place to get it from, that it would it would almost be ridiculous to, to consider anything else. So, yeah, that's that's what those guys look for. So somewhere in the galaxy, in the universe, there could be a civilization absorbing the energy of stars. They're sucking the energy out of stars and giving it back to their own planet. That sounds like a... I don't know, like a scientific, like a science fiction movie or something like that. But that that's pretty cool. <laughs> I like that. It is pretty cool. Yeah. And I guess we do it now. We've got solar panels. We have solar yeah. panels on our roof. So we're kind of sucking it out of the star, but we're we're doing it very inefficiently, aren't we? Yeah. But if you, it's, it's not really a new concept, is it? You know, I mean, so tons of satellites, the Mars rovers and explorers are always all powered by solar. You know, it's just, it is, a, it's a way for us to sort of get free, clean energy and yeah i I guess that it it was it's this view of the science community that that's what an intelligent civilization would do and it's hard to disagree with that perspective Mm -hmm. isn't it we kind of use it ourselves now we're just not super super clever with solar technology we're pretty clever with it but not as clever as that but give us another thousand years and we'd probably solved it yeah i mean we might have solved it in another 50 maybe yeah this has been awesome man thank you i've enjoyed the chat this is. I, I hope your viewers have enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I, I have loved this, man. This has been so cool. It's so interesting to talk about something like this. Usually we talk about business or, um, you know, real estate or, I don't know, some sort of financial product or something like that. This has been like, this has been more for me, I think, than anybody. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. No, it is cool. It is cool. And, and I think um, science just generally as a business Um needs to do things like this it needs to talk to guys like you because uh, science is a business communication is a business and and it's something that the science community has historically been really bad at whereas you guys have been really good at it so we can all learn stuff we can all i watch a lot of podcasts that are not um science podcasts they're just mm-hmm. people who i think are just great communicators and even just down to sort of um the introduction that you gave your visitors there is just worlds apart from something that you'd see on on a typical science podcast so yeah. it's cool we learn that we learn stuff all the time from from doing things like this and it's really valuable so thank you well i've learned that i want to start a business absorbing <laughs> energy from the sun <laughs> You're be a, a, a stellar miner right all right <laughs> Ian, how cool. can people get hold of you um, you can visit us on our website. So you, that is uh, www.theaveragescientist.co.uk or .com, whichever is your preference. Um, either will take you to the same location. We're also quite active on Facebook, where if you just search The Average Scientist, you'll find us, but the links are also on the website, as they are for Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube as well. Awesome, awesome. The Average Scientist, and all that stuff will be in the show notes at the bottom as well. So if you forgot what he just said, just... Scroll down to the bottom. You'll see it on, on YouTube <laughs> or on uh, Spotify uh, uh, or not, it's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcasts. I keep saying it wrong. So anyway. <laughs> all right, Ian, here's the big question I ask at the end of every podcast. If you, Ian, could, we're, we're land life, buy and sell. Yep. Certain trees, pretty much. If you, Ian, could buy land anywhere in the world, let's, do we, should we make it the universe? Since we're talking about universe, no, well, mine's going to be mine's going to firmly be on planet Earth for probably the most okay. unlikely reason that you would you, you would you would guess, I guess. But go on, go for shoot. it. Where would it be and why? I would 
if I could own land anywhere, it would be um, somewhere in Tennessee on the fringes of Nashville because I am a massive country music fan. I, I, I've never been to Nashville, but I would love to go. And um, I'm, I feel fairly sure that I'd be very, very at home there. Uh, so that's where I'd, that's where I'd live if I had the choice. I was just out there a few months ago. It's beautiful. It's a great place. It's so fun. It's like the, uh, it's, I don't know if you've ever been to Las Vegas. I have not. No. You're familiar with Las Vegas. So it's a little crazy wild. Uh, yeah. Nashville is like a toned down version of Vegas. And for, <laughs> okay. for, for people our age, right? A little, we're not 21 years old anymore. We're not in our twenties. No. You know, we want to go out and have a good time. There's country music everywhere. Every big country star has their own bar on the, on the strip down there. It's, you got to go. You have to go. So make it, put it on your bucket list, man. You have to go out there. I've got to do it. I've got, I have, do have some friends that, um, I mean, cause I've obviously very, very interested in that music scene and some of the up and coming, I mean, the country music scene here is very embryonic and yeah. some of your up and coming stars come and cut their teeth in the UK. And oh, those, okay. those, uh, those gigs can be very small and very intimate. And actually you can just get to chat to people. So I've made a few friends. Um, generally great. they're just kind of crazily interested in finding life on other planets. And I'm really yeah. interested in three chords and the truth. So <laughs> we, we, kind of, we, have, we have many conversations over a beer and uh, yeah, I've got some nice friends and I've been invited tons of times, but it's finding time in your schedule to do it, isn't it? But I'm definitely going to make time now, especially if it's like a sort of, shall we call it a grown up version of Vegas? Yes. Is that too risky? Definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's so much fun that you have to go. So make sure you, you, you put that on your calendar for the next year or two to get out there. Cause it's, it's definitely <laughs> worth it. It's, it's a good time. It's on, it's on the list. Awesome. All right, Ian, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you, PJ. It's been a pleasure. All right, guys. Till next time, I'll see you on Land Life.